I don't, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it is officially the holidays. Yeah. <laughs> and by the holidays, I mean Christmas. A little less enthusiasm on that one, okay? I know some of you, some of you are still working on your Halloween candy, and that's fine. That's great. We haven't even had the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and had Santa Claus Parade down Broadway, but from where I sit, it is absolutely Christmas. And by where I sit, I mean literally where I sit every morning of the world when Julie and I get up and have coffee together in our living room. It looks a little something like this. Now, I want you to understand something. This is not a picture from years gone by. This is current. This was snapped this week. And I'm telling you, it's, it's phenomenal. I, I love, you know, it, for those of you who know Julie, she loves her some Christmas. And I, of course, love me some Julie. So when she says, it's time to get the Christmas decorations out of storage, I get the Christmas decorations out of storage because that's my job. That's what I do. And it's funny because almost overnight, our home is transformed from the day in, day out, everyday house that we live in into this incredible outpost, strategic, forward operating base of the North Pole. <laughs> and, and the garland and the trees and the lights, all of it together signals this incredible shift when our priorities and our activities as a household and a family change almost overnight. John the Baptist signaled a seismic, tectonic shift in the priorities and the activities of the religious and the secular establishment of his day. He came preaching a message, announcing the, the birth of Messiah, obviously Jesus, but also indicating that the established order, those accepted priorities and activities of the establishment would absolutely not hold in the coming age of Messiah. Now, now the word Messiah is a really important word, not only because it's Christmas time, but because of what it really Represents The word Messiah means the, the anointed one, the promised one of Israel. And it confers upon Jesus of Nazareth a very real sense of royalty, that he is the king of kings, that he is the Lord of lords. And it was the coming of Messiah that John's life was created to announce, that John the Baptist would prepare a way for the coming of Messiah. Now, as we talked about last week, when we kicked off this series, for those of you who maybe weren't here, John the Baptist is a fascinating guy. He was literally the cousin of Jesus. He was born a few weeks or months ahead of Jesus. His father, Zechariah, was a Jewish priest. And so he was born into the very epicenter of this religious establishment that his ministry was called by God to absolutely upend and kind of stand on its head. And John the Baptist was a powerful preacher in his own right. It's funny because 
he didn't preach in, in the, the traditional synagogue setting. He didn't stay in town and stand on a street corner yelling at the top of his lungs. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist went and, and lived out in the wilderness, out away from Jerusalem, the, the kind of barren, desolate area of desert that kind of follows the Jordan River south of the Sea of Galilee before it pours into the Dead Sea. And it was out there in the middle of nowhere that John the Baptist started attracting these massive crowds. People were flocking to hear his message. People would say in town, you ain't gonna believe this guy out in the middle of nowhere. He wears this real like coarse clothing made out of camel's hair. He eats wild honey and locusts. He's one of the best preachers I've ever heard. And people were showing up in droves. And maybe it's just a pastor problem, but that kind of caused me to wonder, what was he saying? What what was he doing that that caused people to show up in the numbers that they showed up? If you got your Bibles, I want you to look at Luke chapter 3. And while you're looking up Luke chapter 3, Luke 3, Luke, of course, is the third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As you're looking up Luke chapter 3, I'm going to kind of steal a little bit of the thunder and and let you know that his message was extremely counterintuitive. It it is not what you would expect for somebody who is drawing a huge crowd. Look look at what the Bible says in Luke 3, verses 7 and 8 especially. It says, when the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes. It's not not a warm opening right there. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Just the feel-good hit of the summer right there, isn't it? Golly, you brood of snakes. Older translations say you brood of vipers. I mean, that's an incredible opener, isn't it? He says, listen, what you think is going to earn God's favor and get you into heaven, you are missing the boat so badly. Now, it's important that you understand the context into which John was speaking, the the context that he was born into, particularly as it relates to religion. In John's day and age, there was a highly, highly structured, long-term established hierarchy of religious rules and rituals. And there was was this incredible hierarchy uh, of really largely self-appointed people. There, There was some some little tip of the cap to tradition and what God had commanded Moses back in the desert when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law, all of those things that had happened 1,500 years before. But now there was this, there were of course priests like John's dad, but there was also what was known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of of lawyer scholars. They They were theologians and lawyers. That sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? And they were the ones who kind of kept everybody in order. Below the Sanhedrin, you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and these were, these were kind of religious, spiritual, theological scholars that the Sadducees 
were, were a group of Jews that did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. So they were sad, you see. So you had the Sadducees. I'm sorry, that's a horrible old preacher joke. But you'll remember it. Next time you read that in the Bible, you see Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were sad, you see. You'll remember it. And it's terrible. But then the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the legal scholars, and, and they were the theological legal scholars. They would take the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, Exodus, Leviticus, et cetera, et cetera, and they fabricated laws about the laws. They, they, would, they would say, okay, the law about the Sabbath, thou shalt not worry, thou shalt honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, and on that day you shall do no work for the Lord your God, rested from his labor of creation on the Sabbath. They would take that, and then they would make up a whole list of rules and regulations attached just to the Sabbath. They, they had rules about how high above the ground the tassels on their cloaks could be. I mean, they were the legalists' legalist. And it was into that context that John was speaking. And, and, and what he was really getting at was the, the null and void bankruptcy of religion for the sake of religion. Now, if you're new around here, that may surprise you a little bit to hear me say that, but that's not new to anyone who is familiar with the teachings of Jesus. Jesus said that religion for the sake of religion is absolutely bankrupt. That's what John the Baptist was getting at here. He was saying, just because you're descendants of Abraham, don't think that that's gonna give you a free pass. Because ultimately, this is not about heritage or legacy or history. Ultimately, the kingdom of God, the good news of Jesus is about a relationship with God. If it weren't about relationship, it, God could take these rocks right here in the desert and make children of Abraham out of them. But he's chosen you. He's invited you into his family to be his chosen people. So act like it. Act like there's something different about you. You see, religion, whether it's in John the Baptist's day or even in our day, religion for the sake of religion is bankrupt. Religion is just man-made rules and rituals. And the, the basic premise of religion is this, that our rules and rituals reserve our position that our rules and rituals will reserve our position. You know how many people I've talked to over the course of my life and throughout my ministry? And, and I've, if, if it comes up and we've prayed through it, I'll be like, have you, are, you, are you a Christian? Are you a Christ follower? You know how many people will say, oh, totally, yes. My mom and dad were at church every time the doors were open and made sure I was too. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, lock-ins every Friday of my studenthood, every single time the doors are open, we were there. I'm a Christian. Not necessarily. Just because you're religious, just because you observe rules and rituals doesn't mean that you are a follower of Christ. To be a follower of Christ requires relationship. Now you can imagine 
John preaching this message was kind of upsetting the religious apple cart of his day. And people were kind of like, whoa, 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 we, hey, hey, John. JTB, what up, dog? What, what do you mean? What do you mean that because I'm a child of Abraham, that doesn't mean I'm going to, John, my boy. Listen, I get it, all the honey and locusts, nice coat, but I mean, ultimately, look at what the Bible says. Verse 10, the crowds asked, what should we do? It's a great question, isn't it? What should we do? John replied, well, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. Verse 14, now what should we do, asked some soldiers. And John replied, well, for you, don't extort money or make false accusations. And be content with your pay. It's in this exchange out in the wilderness that John, John shifts from the religious context of his day and gets into the worldly context of his day. He, he's dealing here with really worldly people. He's kind of already addressed the religious, but, but here he's talking about tax collectors and soldiers. Now, tax collector in John's day and age, man, tax collector was a great job. Tax collectors were absolutely loaded because they were, by definition, cheats and liars. They were commissioned by Rome to collect taxes for Rome, but then they would impose higher taxes than was actually owed and pocket the difference. That's a good gig. I mean, if you're looking strictly at compensation. And so John said, well, for you, tax collectors, don't take any more than what is owed. Just, just take he, what he was saying here was, do your job. Tell your neighbor right now like you mean it. Do your job. <laughs> Say, just, just do your job. And the soldiers, they said, well, what about us? We're not tax collectors. We're not religious Jews. What do we do? And, and the soldiers that John was addressing, these would be essentially police state soldiers. These, these were not probably soldiers who had been engaged in battle and warfare on behalf of Rome, but they were there controlling the population of Judea, this area of the Roman Empire, keeping the peace. And at this time, Rome kind of looked at the Jews as a quirky little cult, that as long as they didn't create too much trouble, they let them do whatever they wanted to do, but they were going to keep the soldiers amongst them just to make sure. And John said, well, for you, the soldiers, don't extort money from the people that you're policing. Just be content with the pay that you have as a soldier. And all of a sudden, it's just like everything is just completely being upended. There was this accepted social order for the religious people. There was this accepted social order for the, the worldly people of tax collectors and soldiers. And they kind of lived in this constant state of tension and, and just we're not going to kill each other completely today. And John said, no, there's, there's a better way. He, he's speaking here. And, and mirroring that which the God had said through the prophet Micah hundreds of years before. Micah is an incredible book of the Bible. It's a small book. He's known as one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And, and when I say that he's a minor prophet, don't be offended on behalf of Micah. That didn't mean he didn't do his job well. 
It just means that their books were shorter than the major prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah. They had longer books. Micah had a very short book. But I want you to see what God said through the prophet Micah hundreds of years before John the Baptist. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Micah 6, verse 8. It says, he has told you, God has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. And in this, John parrots Micah. But he's also preparing the way for Jesus because you'll notice that reference there that I included, Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew 22, Jesus said the greatest command is to love God, walk humbly before your God, and your neighbor as yourself. So love justice, act kindly, and walk humbly with your God. This answers the question, what do we do? What do we do? We love justice. We participate in justice. We make sure that justice is a reality for as many people as we possibly can. We do not contribute to injustice. But we also, we also show kindness. We're, we're, we're to be people of kindness because of the love God has shown us. And in that kindness, we walk humbly with God. We, we acknowledge that he is God and we are not. And this, obviously, just completely shatters the paradigm that the world pushes on us. And when I say us, I mean all of us. Every single one of us. There's something inherent in each one of us that is drawn to the ways of the world. That it is drawn to power, possessions, prominence, status. The world says that our power and our prominence preserve our position. That if we can just acquire more power or achieve more prominence, then that will preserve our position in the world. And John said, absolutely not. Be content, be kind, love God, and act like it. You see that there's this, this new tectonic shift that is coming that ought to change our priorities and our activities. It's it just like, you know, the flipping of the calendar in our household means that it's time to decorate. And, and we change the, the smell of the house. We change the appearance of the house. We change what we do. We start thinking about gifts for other people. We start thinking about our schedule and travel. It changes Everything, John is saying that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, changes everything. Verse 16, John answered their questions by saying, listen, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, Jesus, so much greater, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. 
and then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. It's a strong statement. You know, when we think of Jesus, and especially Christmas Jesus, we think of baby Jesus, right? And that's appropriate, by the way. He was born just like you and I were born, very different circumstances, but he was born. But John is saying here, it doesn't just stop with baby Jesus, that there's also Jesus the judge. And Jesus the judge will separate the, the wheat from the chaff. He will, Jesus said, there, there's a difference between the sheep and the goats, and, and the difference is faith. You, you choose to believe that he is who he says he is, or you choose to reject that. And, and that's a hard truth, but it's real. As we said a few weeks ago, you know, here at, at Lake Hills, You'll never hear anybody preaching about hell happily. <laughs> we love talking about hell. Have you ever, you know, you've heard people who, you know, they, they love to try to literally scare the hell out of people. You know, I'm not cursing, I'm, so don't send me an email. I'm just saying, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? But at the same time, we're not doing anybody any favors if we don't tell them the truth. That... This life is an opportunity for us to encounter, discover, and connect with the God who created us. And to connect with him, as John said, to, to love God begins with a decision to confess our sins, repent of our sins. Repentance means a 180. It's a military term. It means an about face. And follow Christ. That, that's where that starts. Now, if you choose not to, that's your choice. But God says that eternity will be the fulfillment of that choice. You, you'll spend eternity separated from the God that you rejected in this life. And again, we, we don't celebrate that fact, but we're not doing anybody any favors to not declare that fact. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Creator, and Jesus is the Judge. And so there is this, this picture, you know, that John paints here of the, the fork and the fire. The winnowing fork is, is what he picks up the, the wheat with to separate it from the husk and the hull and the chaff. And, and it's real. And that's, that's Jesus' job. It's not my job, not your job. None of us has to decide that. That's way above our pay grade. But it's Jesus' job. And Jesus will do his job. But we have the opportunity to connect with him. This is what John the Baptist was communicating in this wild faith that he proclaimed. He said, it's, it's about repenting and following him. It's relationship. You see, the gospel, the gospel says that it's God's grace and goodness that deserves our passion. It's God's grace and goodness that deserves our passion. It's not our activities. It's not our position. 
It's not our prominence. It's not our possessions. It's God's grace and his goodness. And so we respond to his grace initiative with a passion to live it out, to live with him, to walk with him, to walk with each other, to do justice, to act with kindness, and walk humbly with our God. That's what John the Baptist's message was. There was something about it that rang true to his followers because it is true, and it's why it still rings true 2,000 years later. Now, I, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what challenges you're facing. I don't know what hurts you're harboring. But I do know that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is sufficient. It is enough in ways that nothing else can touch. Religion is not enough by itself. The world and the prominence and power that we strive for is not enough. Jesus and Jesus alone is enough for anyone who would follow him. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And in this moment, I want to invite everyone in the room to pray for everyone in the room. If you're here and you are a follower of Christ, maybe this is a, an invitation from God to be more deliberate, more intentional about injustice in our world, maybe injustice in our own lives. Or, or maybe, maybe it's just to be kinder, maybe especially to the people closest to us. But maybe, maybe this moment is an invitation to you to walk humbly with God, to begin that journey, to take that step of faith in a relationship with Christ. If that's you this morning, then I wanna invite you to respond to the invitation of God himself. Just to pray right where you're sitting, a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning, a prayer of surrender to the amazing grace and goodness and absolute authority of Jesus. If that's you, pray where you are just silently. Something like this in your own words, just silently talk to God and say, Jesus, I need you. I know that I need you. And so right here, right now, 
I confess my sin to you. All of it. And Jesus, I receive, I accept and own your forgiveness. The forgiveness that you facilitated through the cross and your resurrection from the dead. Jesus, from this moment, I will follow you. everything I have. And I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain in a moment of prayer just for a moment. But if that was your prayer, this is the greatest moment of your life. It's the moment where Jesus brought you from death to life. And the Bible says that the old is gone and the new is coming. That's a big deal. And you're surrounded by people who want to help. If you would, I want to ask you just to do a couple of things, just right where you're sitting. If you would, take the program that you got when you came in this morning and fill it out. That connect card that's inside the program. Just open it up right now, just quietly, but just open it up and start filling it out. About a third of the way down, there's a place to indicate there. I committed my life to Christ this week. And once you've completed that card, you can just kind of tear it off along the fold. It's perforated there. If you want to, fold it up in half. And before you leave, when we dismiss in just a moment, hand that card to one of our ushers, one of our hosts. And that starts a conversation, a conversation that proceeds at your pace, whatever works for you. We want to just help. And we want you to know that we want you to be a part of the family. And then second of all, if you would, just as our heads are bowed for another moment, if, if you don't mind, if you would just raise your hand. If you just stepped into that relationship with Christ, just raise your hand for just a moment. Because your hand in the air kind of stamps this moment in your life, but also in the life of this church. And so as a family, we celebrate that with you. This is your spiritual birthday, once and for all. And as you put your hands down, we're gonna put our hands together and just tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.